0: I'm Adit and this is a Business, coming up this week. With a national strike looming, is it time to sound the last post for the Royal Mail? Plus, how do you feel about paying an extra 10% on your energy bills to fund our nuclear programme? And, we ask, does the fairer sex hold solution to the banking crisis? This is The Business from The Guardian. Here with me in the pod this week, we have the Observer's jet-setting business editor, Ruth Sunderland. Where have you been, Ruth?
1: Um, I've been to Deauville in France, a beautiful little resort on the Normandy coast, um, for the fifth Women's International Forum on the Economy and and Society, which is kind of a woman's version of Davos, really.
0: With extra cake?
1: Uh, The cakes were delicious but tiny. (laughs)
0: And Rod Schwartz is the CEO of Clearly So and all-round social business guru. Nice to have you back, Rod.
2: Thanks. Nice to be here again. Thank you.
0: And finally, Tim Webb is the industrial editor of the Observer. Tim, we'll come onto your front page story about nuclear taxes shortly. But first, we're going to start with Royal Mail. perhaps it is time to sound the last post for the Royal Mail at the time of podding a two day national strike is still on the cards and further disruption is planned in the run up to Christmas Tim, I'm going to set you the impossible task of summing up the entire dispute in two minutes.
3: Well, it's, it's a really a bit of an industrial relations mess. Uh, on the one hand, you've got um, the 160 odd thousand people who work for Royal Mail, many of whom fear that they'll be losing their jobs uh, in the next couple of years as Royal Mail modernises and introduces new equipment, new automatic mail sorting machines, for example, which um, essentially will mean that uh, Royal Mail won't need so many staff. But we all know that um, also, mail volumes are falling. People send fewer uh, letters these days as as we will use uh, email and Blackberries and uh, mobile phones uh, rather than sending letters so at the heart of this dispute really is is jobs um, I think a lot of uh, people who work for Royal Mail members of the CWU union <laughs> feel they don't have too much to lose they feel that well if they're going to lose their job under these modernization plans that Royal Mail is is uh, planning to implement um, next year then um, you know they haven't got too much to lose from going on strike. The CWU accuse Royal Mail of chaos management. They say that Royal Mail doesn't really, um, hasn't really explained how it plans to use all these machines and, and what it really means for, for the business and for their employees. I mean, in slight defence of the CWU, talking to Royal Mail, they don't really seem to say specifically how many jobs will be cut, whether people will be forced to go from full time to part time. I mean, they do. They do provide assurances that there won't be any compulsory redundancies. But I have to say, the union uh, doesn't have too much confidence in that. And just briefly,
0: can you voice any support for the Royal Mail management at all?
3: Well, they're in a very difficult situation. I mean, I'm trying to be uh, impartial here. Um, You know, as I said, it's not their fault that that fewer people are sending letters. They've got this huge uh, estimated ten billion pound pension deficit. Again, that's not their fault. Um, I think. Whoever was running raw Mail, whether it's Adam Crozier or someone else, they would still have a big, big problem. So I wouldn't really call it a management problem either, Ruth. Who do you think's got the right here?
1: Well, as Tim says, I think there are great difficulties on both sides. Um, I mean, I do think, in fairness, there is an issue around management rewards here, and I do also think, you know, they've been in situ now the current team for several years, so one would have thought that they have had a reasonable amount of time to at least make some progress at sorting this out. I mean, I would also say that it would seem as if there are levels of. Transigence and provocation on both sides.
0: And Rod, as a businessman, uh, a complete national stoppage on postal services is just a disaster, isn't it?
2: Well, it's certainly not good. But I think it's interesting that you've put it a particular way, which is, is it a management issue or is it a workers' issue? I think the one group that you haven't put in the dock that belongs there is the government, government. which obviously hasn't been investing in the Royal Mail for 10 years Um, uh, it's allowed the pension deficit to creep up to levels that are now completely unacceptable and intolerable. And actually, I think the blame lies with them. And these two innocent folks are dealing with, you know, the hands that they have. And it's really all a bit of a mess, I think, uh, for Peter Mandelson to be beyond anger, as he refers to himself as being, uh, is a bit ridiculous, given his responsibility, his government's responsibility for putting the Royal Mail and the workers in this situation.
0: Okay, so Tim, it's either Billy Hayes mm. for the CW, Adam Crozier for Raw Mail, or Mandelson. Who do well, you? Well, Rod makes
3: for? a good point. I mean, it's not really Mandelson's fault. Um, I think the problem goes back a, a far. It goes back f- much further than that. I mean, when Raw Mail was profitable six, seven, eight years ago, before the internet or before the internet really had taken off, and, and even before that. Um, the government siphoned off the profits they didn't invest in the business and so that's why we're left with such an inefficient uh, not very modern business so I mean other incumbent, uh, formerly state-owned postal groups like Royal Mail in other countries in Holland for example they have some problems as well similar problems but not on such a large scale and that's for two reasons really one is governments um, most other governments have invested in their uh, postal service so they haven't just taken uh, taken the profits so they don't have such huge pension deficits um, but also um, we're, we're the suckers for free markets really in this country and that uh, we play by the, the, the free markets rule so um, if, if we're told to liberalize whether it's our energy market or postal markets we, we do that um, whereas other countries are uh, maybe a bit more self-interested and they they, they in holland for example they uh, they protected their um, tNT which is their equivalent of Royal mail uh, against competition so they 've allowed that that strengthened their their postal group uh, their or the state owned postal group uh, from competition it 's bolstered profits whereas um we've opened up um the markets we've almost unfettered competition which means the private operators cherry pick the best um contracts from royal mail and they're just lumbered with the stuff that they can't really make money on such as universal uh, uh postal service which is the one price goes anywhere service that that is enshrined in the royal mail's charter so um yeah i think the government has got a lot to answer uh, answer for
0: Red Tim Webb there, our indu- apparently our <laughs> industrial editor. Um, you're playing up to Ruth Sutherland, I'm sure, but I'm going to ask Ruth a, 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 a thornier question. The government always says that it's liberalising our market simply because it has to, because there's an EU directive that forces the entire postal market across the European Union to be opened up. So we might talk about how uh, you know we had a great universal public service, but the truth is Brussels has got this directive out which all the governments across the EU are going to have to follow, aren't they?
1: Well, I mean, I think Tim's absolutely right um, in the sense that we do seem to display markedly more zeal for doing this than um, some other nations. Um, I mean, you've seen the same sort of thing happen in, in other industries, in the car industry, for example. And I'd like to really make a bit of a broader point in a, in a way in that I think that the credit crunch has really made us question what Tim calls this sort of mania for the for the free market in the sense if you look at the privatisations of the banks um, well I suppose strictly demutualizations of building societies you know none of those institutions exist on the stock market anymore and I think the whole dogma that you know being quoted on markets and having free markets and that that was fantastic and that national ownership or mutual ownership was not where it was, you know, not the right thing, has been questioned, thrown into question by the credit crunch. And I think this is also relevant to the whole discussion that we'll come on to about nuclear too. So I just think that's a, that's a new debate that we'll all be having.
0: This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Well, you've just mentioned it, Ruth, so let's go nuclear now. And Tim, you've, you've uncovered something rather juicy about our energy policy. Tell us about this 10% tax rise on our bills we're about to face.
3: Sure. Well, um, I've uh, learned that uh, officials from the Office of Nuclear Development, which is a powerful uh, group set up by the government to, uh, as the name suggests, to promote the construction of new reactors in the UK, the first new uh, reactors for over 20 years. And uh, they've been talking to uh, energy companies um, uh, and promised them that um, the carbon price, which is that there is a, a price for carbon set by something called the european union's emissions trading scheme these officials from the office of nuclear development development have promised energy companies that the carbon price will be fixed or rigged at a much higher level than it is already which effectively will make um the, the construction of new reactors um economic because at the moment the economics really just don't work for for nuclear because energy prices are too low um and um, I mean, it's controversial, really, because the government has repeatedly, uh, and, and previous governments and uh, ministers have repeatedly promised that um, nuclear would not receive su- uh, subsidies anymore. When in fact, it looks like the government will have to step in to uh, to make it happen. Rod, I understand you've got to be in your bonnet about nuclear.
2: Well, I mean, there are a couple of things to say here. I think uh, I think Tim's to be congratulated for having uncovered this, but. The way it's working is not as a tax as such. The way it's going to work is that actually the government will make sure that the price of carbon, which is traded on the markets, doesn't fall below, I think it's 30 pounds or yeah. 40 pounds uh, a ton or whatever it is. And actually, as you know, clearly so is a business that supports social and ethical and environmental businesses, we quite like a high price of carbon. It actually brings on stream uh, solar, wind – and other renewable energies, and I think actually it's the sort of thing that, as such, I'm not opposed to. My problem is that nuclear, because it's less uh, polluting, also benefits from this higher price of carbon, yet at the same time, the government isn't going forward and actually saying, we're also going to make you responsible for all these cleanup costs down the road 50 or 60 years later when we have to decommission these plants, and that's outrageous. It's a cost that we as a society will have to bear that the government is picking up for the nuclear industry. But in addition, uh, my understanding is that the government will also pay for any kind of nuclear accident that results. I think the nuclear industry should have to pay for the externalities that it generates. But in general, I'm very much in favor of a higher carbon price because I think it will make this whole economy much more energy efficient and much more reliable on renewables. So are you anti-nuclear or do you see any place for nuclear in the energy mix? I... I probably am on balance slightly anti-nuclear because I think we have been uh, dishonest with ourselves about the, the full cost of this cleanup and the, and the risk that it entails. I, I do accept the arguments on a short-term basis so that we don't uh, pollute to too great an extent to let nuclear maybe run a little bit longer. But I would certainly put myself in the anti-nuclear camp. I think if we're going to use that money to do something – let's uh, develop solar and wind much faster than we are. I think if the solar and wind lobby groups were half as powerful as the nuclear energy lobby groups, the money would be going there and we'd be much better off as a result. Ruth?
1: I I think I couldn't have, Put it better, really. I mean, I think you've summed up more or less where I stand. I mean, I have to say, at the moment, I can't see how nuclear can't be part of the mix in the short term, um, for all sorts of reasons, which are probably too laborious to go into. But I think that's the real politique at the, the moment. But the thing is, Ruth,
0: you can't have nuclear in the short term. You either commit to it well, a long term that, or you don't at all. But I
1: think, it, I think it should be. You know, part of our long-term objective, um, I mean, that, that's, that's right, but part of our long-term objective should be moving toward more towards other sources that are safer and that are less costly. In, and I think part of this is about, it is about being honest about what's going on here because, you know, you can easily present the fixing of the carbon price as benefiting renewables. Well, yes, it does, but, you know, disproportionately it will benefit nuclear. And the whole issue of cleanup has barely been discussed and so you know i really i as i say, i don't think i could have put my case better in in my own words really
0: tim i want you to be the bernard ingham of this table and speak up for the nuclear lobby
3: <laughs> um ho- uh, yeah i'm not quite the bernard ingham's uh we'll move you up to yorkshire yes stage of life yet um i mean i i think uh, really we're all too hung up about this word subsidy really uh, I, I think Given that we've got such a t- t- climate change crisis, really, um, I think uh, we all accept, really, that the governments need to intervene in the markets to make sure that low carbon uh, forms of electricity generation like nuclear and also renewables are rewarded uh, on, on that basis for, for being low carbon. So. I think we're all too hung up about using this word subsidies, and i mean the government has slightly shot itself in the foot by by promising um that that it wouldn't subsidize nuclear um i don't think i think it should stand up and say yes we'll, we'll subsidize nuclear we'll do whatever it needs to, to take for it to to get built within reason and of course, other forms of um, uh, you know, renewables, um, wind, solar, clean coal, they will also benefit from a higher carbon price. But I think that this primarily, the, the, the fixing a minimum level is, is, is primarily aimed at the nuclear industry because they're, they're the ones struggling at the moment. Very good.
0: There's plenty more comment and analysis on all things nuclear and green at guardian.co.uk slash environment. And finally this week, we're going to talk banks and bonuses again. Well, not so fast. The last seven days have seen another round of headlines about huge bonuses being dished out at RBS and Goldman Sachs. But The Guardian's business editor and pod regular Deborah Hargreaves thinks she has a solution. And it doesn't involve pinstripe suits or testosterone.
4: I want to set up an investment bank run by women. The reason why I'm saying women should be in charge is that women have a cautious track record. Okay, maybe they don't make short-term high profits, but for the long term, they tend to be regarded as a safe pair of hands there's a gap in the market for an ethical investment bank, which is run along different lines from the testosterone-fuelled, macho-driven investment banks that got us into this financial crisis. This is not a sexist idea, because I'm saying that the board of this bank would have an equal number of men as women. It would just have a woman in charge. Men would also be in important positions. And we're talking about something not that radical but if you look at the way the city is constructed today it appears to be dramatic so my bank would be a bank that would look at different areas of the market areas which are not being provided for at present I would look at some areas of the market in Britain which are under provided for small businesses women starting out now you may say that these are not very profitable propositions But do we essentially want a bank that maximises its profit in the way that we've seen with the current range of investment banks bouncing back into profit and paying massive bonuses? On the subject of bonuses, what I'm saying is that we wouldn't pay them in this bank. We would have a ratio in place so that the top managers and top board directors would only earn a certain proportion of those at the bottom, so it would be driven along more equal lines where are we going to get our financing from we would need some backing and if we're not going to be hugely profitable we would need some very patient sponsors so let's just think about a different model it's not sexist it's just a different way of looking at things
0: deborah Hargreaves there and we've linked to her original article on the blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business Ruth, you'd be my nomination for chief executive. Are you going to take it up?
1: Well, she's offered me a job. Um, what has? <laughs> uh, she, she hasn't specified yet, but be careful. Um, yeah, be, be careful what you wish for. Um, I, I think it's a I think it's a great idea. Um, I don't think it is um, sexist, as Deborah says, because after all, nobody thinks that an all-male bank, which is effectively what we have at the upper levels of every British bank, with the exception of the odd female executive, usually non-executives, you know, that's what we consider to be the norm. So I think if you had um, a bank which had an equal number of men and women in positions of power but led by a woman. Um, it would just it wouldn't even redress the balance. It would just offer one alternative. But you would still have a very male dominated banking system.
0: Were you hearing any of these sorts of comments at your conference?
1: What I was hearing at the conference was um, yeah, I mean some of it went to that really. And what I heard a lot, particularly from women in the developing world, was that they wanted to see an end to a system where banks pushed around funding between themselves, you know, as we saw in the run up to the credit crunch, um, rather uselessly, you know, this money or notional money was pushed around to the benefit of nobody apart from the bankers who generated fees and bonuses. What these women wanted to see, and I'm talking about women in places like Rwanda and Afghanistan, um, was micro credit or an even larger amounts of credit coming through to female entrepreneurs who are on a global level, a large part of the solution for getting vast areas of the world out of poverty. So, you know, I think we need a, a look at, you know, I'm not against debt. I mean, debt and credit have got become almost dirty words in this Crisis. Um, Actually, they can be really powerful, valuable tools, but they have to be directed in the right sort of way.
0: Let's turn our attention back to the Bank of Hargreaves. Rod, they'll probably be looking for some kind of corporate advisor. Do you
2: fancy doing that job? I would love to have that job. Uh, Please uh, put my name forward. I mean, I I feel very strongly about this. I think this is a terrific idea. Um, It's not a new idea, the idea of an all women bank. I mean, there's, I looked in the internet today, and Babylon Bank, uh, has just announced an all-women branch in Iraq. So um, there are some ideas all over the place. And there are other all-women banks, but they're focused really on the customer side. Microfinance, with, which Ruth mentions, is actually uh, largely to women. Women have a historically far better track record at repaying their debts. They pay back 97 or 98%. They appear to be far better at managing debt and far better, I suspect, they'll be far better at managing uh, the banking system When it comes to ethics, there's lots of evidence that over the last two years, the ethical banks, Triodos, the Co-op Bank and others, have dramatically outperformed their competitors. I think what's novel about uh, Deborah's idea is that it takes me back to my old days of being a financial analyst looking at the investments banking sector. There isn't, uh, and I've never seen any suggestion of an all-woman investment bank or an uh, investment bank run by women, but I think it's an excellent idea There's a lot of evidence, statistical evidence, that uh, organizations and banks where it's more diverse outperform. There's lots of evidence that women have a much greater ability to balance things, much more so than men do, who kind of go for one thing at a time. And we've seen what a disaster that can cause. So I think it would be a very interesting idea. I don't know uh, what kind of laws it would violate, uh, how discriminatory it would be able to operate as. But I think in concept, it's a really great idea. And I would love to be on the board. Tim, if
0: anyone from the business desk is qualified to be the Howard of the bank, singing over the adverts, it's got to be you, hasn't it? <laughs> um, how do you get go down in public? Really, we want our- From
3: Bernard Ingham to Howard within a couple of minutes. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good.
0: <laughs> it's the way you move your hips. Um, how do you think such a bank would go down in public?
3: Well, I, I, it's a very interesting idea, and I, I was just as, as listening to Ruth and Rod. Uh, I mean, I'm in the process of remortgaging, and I, I'm wondering whether um, I would be prepared to, to to pay more if, indeed, a women-only uh, mortgage bank uh, offered higher rates. Whether I would actually, or uh, anyone sat around these, this table would actually be prepared to pay if if a women-only bank, as Deborah was was suggesting, maybe wasn't so profitable, and maybe they might have to, you know, have have higher interest repayments. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not probably the best person, to kind of, to, to comment on this. I'm not a banking expert, but is is the problem with the banks and a banking crisis? Is it is it gender or is it the the banks themselves, the system? And and if it's a system, is it men who've created the system? Well, yes, but is it because is it because or is it just capitalism?
2: Rod, well, men have definitely created the system. I mean, it's uh, it's a system that has been for a hundred years, uh, totally dominated by men. The proprietary trading, which is what uh, had a heavy impact on the banks, uh, was largely driven by men. So it's not to say that uh, uh, women can't be, uh, that men can't be effective. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it would work much better if there was a more feminine influence on the banking system. You get a lot less of the macho culture. And remember, there's an asymmetry that goes with that. The macho culture is, you know, everybody go long and we'll throw the ball. If I win, then I take the profits. If I lose, then you take the losses. And that's what's happened. And I think that that wouldn't be the case at a female driven so institution.
3: form of capitalism.
2: Ruth, and I think we need it. Ruth,
0: yeah. it, it is it... You, you want to tell me? That you can never ever be macho. You can't ever be aggressive. You can't ever be ruthless.
1: Well, of course I can. And, You're an executive and, um,
0: at a, a national
3: newspaper. Comment. <laughs> and, uh,
1: and and I probably frequently am. Um, and equally, you know, Tim is very clearly in touch with his feminine side as is um, Rod. But um, you know, we, I mean, very few of us are either Arnold Schwarzenegger or Dolly Parton, if I can use those stereotypes. But I don't think it's about that. But I think what it is about, you know. The, I I think I I was the person guilty in this country of first using the phrase Lehman sisters. You know, if Lehman brothers had been Lehman sisters, would it have been so bad? Which I then landed at Harriet Harman in all sorts of trouble and it created all kinds of mayhem. Now, of course, the optimum bank would have been Lehman brothers and sisters. Um, What about
0: Lehman comrades? (laughs)
1: <laughs> Lehman comrades, um, <laughs> Lehman gender free comrades. So, but I think, you know, the point is that what we saw at the top of banks were a self, largely self-selecting, self-perpetuating pool of people who were largely male, who indulged in a form of groupthink at the very top on trading floors now you're probably going to hate this but there's a study from the university of cambridge which showed that on trading floors men fall victim to a sort of boom and bust hormonal cycle so as their testosterone rises they um embrace risk ever more enthusiastically and when things go wrong um cortisol kicks in and they don't want any risk at all and whereas women would perform in a they would make less gain on the upside but perform more steadily now study out today in this wrote about it in this morning's paper um that during the crunch hedge funds run by women only lost half as much as hedge funds run by men now that's because of you know, again, talking very sort of broad brush terms, there is a different style. Now, in a boom, you'd want your money run by a man. In a bust, you might want your money run by a woman. And what I'm saying is it's about complementarity. You know, it's not about one being better or one being worse. It's about different skills for different occasions and different types of tasks. But it can't be right to have half the population excluded.
0: Rod, you have the last word.
2: Uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think complementarity is what we seek. Uh, having said that, as the only person here, I think, who's ever worked for an investment bank, and I'm, I'm I don't know, proud or embarrassed to say I worked for Lehman Brothers and Payne Weber, the single best boss I had by far, by far, was a woman called Margot Alexander. She still lives. She's living in New York City. And she was astonishing. She was uh, aggressive, but in a reasonable way. She was exceptionally fair, very thoughtful, uh, didn't get all worked up about things, and probably the single best manager that I have ever seen in the financial sector. And it's a sector I spent uh, 28 years in. So on that one uh, completely unscientific case analysis, I would say that women make the best uh, investment banking traders. That's it for this
0: week. We're back next time with a special programme all about how, in business terms at least, small is definitely beautiful. But for now, a big thank you to our panel, Ruth Sunderland, Tim Webb and Rod Schwartz. Our producer's Ben Green, I'm Edit Chakraborty and that was Business.